Joining us from uh, from the Canadian corner uh, is Gerald Butts. Gerald Butts is uh, the executive uh, chairman at the, or sorry, vice chairman and senior advisor at the Eurasia Group. Uh, Gerald works closely with the CEO uh, Maziar Minovi and President Ian Bremer on strategic initiatives across all areas of the firm. Gerald has uh, successfully led Canadian and global organizations in the public and private sectors for over 20 years, including his most recent role as Principal Secretary to the uh, Canadian Prime Minister, Mr. Justin Trudeau, from 2015 to 2019. Uh, Gerald was also previously the Policy Secretary and Principal Secretary for the Premier of Ontario and the CEO of WWF Canada. Jerry, hi. We also have uh, Mr. John Podesta joining us. John is the founder and a member of the board for, of the directors for the Centre for American Progress. Uh, Mr. Podesta served as counsellor to President Barack Obama, where he was responsible for coordinating the administration's climate policy and initiatives. In 2008, he served as co-chair of, the, of President Obama's transitions team, and he was a member of the UN Secretary General's high-level panel on eminent persons on the post-2015 development agenda. John also previously served as White House Chief of Staff for uh, President Bill Clinton, and he chaired Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. John, good to see you. Now, moderating today's discussion, uh, we're very lucky to have Althea Raj. Althea is the uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Huffington Post here in Canada. She's a member of the CBC at Issue panel, and she's the host of the really excellent follow-up podcast. Um, and so that is, uh, th that's the event. That is what's going to take us through to noon. Um, like I said, uh, if you are uh, interested in sending in a question, you can do that in the chat or the Q&A function. Uh, but until that time, I'm going to hand things off to Althea. Althea, over to you. Thanks very much, Alex and John and Jerry. It's a real treat to do this with both of you. Um, just to remind you that we are going to be peppering uh, this conversation with questions from you so you can uh, contribute by using the Zoom Q&A application, as Alex mentioned, or if you're watching on YouTube in the, the, the comments section, you can put your question in there and it will be fed to me. Um, so John and Jerry were both asked to uh, come up with some opening remarks on the theme of this discussion, uh, what is the U.S.-Canada climate opportunity? And John has been asked to go first, so over to you, John. Okay, thanks, Althea. And I want to thank Alex and uh, Canada 2020. We've partnered uh, a lot over the years with uh, Canada 2020, uh, both through Global Progress and at the Center for American Progress. It's, it's always good to be with, uh, with you, and I, I just really appreciate this opportunity. Um, you know, I'll, I'll try to be brief, but the U.S. And, and Canada have a deep history of friendship and alliance, and I think that was underscored, uh, and the strategic importance of that uh, alliance was underscored by President Biden's decision that the first foreign leader he would talk to was Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, and the first person he would see is Prime Minister Trudeau. So uh, that uh, was probably uh, put to the test, I think, it's fair to say, over the last four years, about both the question of friendship and the question of alliance uh, by, the, by President Trump and the previous administration. But uh, we have a new day in the United States, and it's I think, time to reforge uh, this powerful alliance. Uh, we have progressives in charge uh, in both capitals and both countries. Uh, and they, I think there's extraordinary opportunity uh, to co collaborate uh, on a shared vision on climate action and building a just uh, and sustainable economy 
that uh, really spans North America. And I think that uh, both the president and the prime minister kind of acknowledged that uh, in, in their first uh, call. Um, uh, obviously, President Biden, Vice President Harris made uh, building back better the centerpiece of their uh, proposition during the course of the campaign. What does that mean? They argued that uh, the crises the United States were facing were linked, the COVID crisis, the resulting uh, economic crisis, uh, the racial justice crisis, and the climate crisis. And in order to attack them all, they had to be kind of bundled together, and we needed to make the right kind of investments to build a more just, equitable, and sustainable economy. They got off uh, to a great start, uh, starting day one, uh, by really focusing uh, on uh, building an all-of-government approach uh, to, to uh, tackling the climate crisis uh, and building a White House structure that uh, was, a, was uh, charged with really making progress uh, on, uh, on fulfilling the promises that, that, uh, that uh, then-candidate Biden made during the course of last summer, uh, transitioning the U.S. economy to 100% clean by 2050, a uh, 100% clean power sector by 2035. That's a very audacious goal, but one that's uh, achievable. And and really focusing on the economic justice challenge by directing uh, the large scale of investment that the that uh, the president uh, has proposed and will propose uh, towards distressed communities, frontline communities, fence line communities, communities that have been born the brunt of pollution that have been uh, left behind. Um, and I think that uh, the it's there's no question that the president intends uh, to make this not just a centerpiece of his economic policy, but his national security uh, and his foreign policy. And the appointment of Secretary John Kerry uh, as special envoy really highlights that. Um, in, in that regard, I think that the uh, of kind of first amongst equals of partners in, in this enterprise of transitioning the economy uh, will no doubt uh, be the U.S.-Canadian relationship. Uh, there, there, obviously, there, there are things that we don't, that we don't have 100% agreement. We had the issue that was raised again in that call around uh, the decision uh, that uh, to withdraw the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. But for the most part, we're very aligned in the way we're thinking about uh, economic transformation, justice, uh, building a sustainable economy. Uh, and there are tremendous opportunities, I think, for U.S.-Canada uh, cooperation uh, in building a, a North American electric vehicle supply chain, in accelerating deployment of renewable energy, in our integrated electric grid, uh, in curbing methane emissions from uh, oil, the oil and gas industry uh, on both sides of the border, in uh, protecting nature through uh, conservation initiatives, uh, in addressing environmental uh, justice issues. We, uh, we have a lot to learn from each other. We have a lot uh, to cooperate uh, to build that more uh, uh, just society and sustainable economy. Uh, I think cooperation's uh, also critical uh, for alignment on issues in the multilateral uh, uh, sector, for example, uh, in the G7, uh, uh, coordinating uh, China strategy, wrapping up international climate finance, 
uh, uh, focusing on how we built mechanisms for carbon border adjustment. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to cooperate on. Uh, and I think it needs to all be in service of producing, again, a strong economy with high quality, good paying jobs for North American workers uh, centered on climate policy, environmental justice and equity. So uh, uh, I look forward to this conversation. Uh, Jerry and I have had many conversations over the years about how one builds uh, that uh, that kind of economy that's going to work for everyone, that's going to be uh, equitable, that's going to lift living standards and wages for people. Uh, but no doubt that this question of innovation and investment in a, in a clean energy economy is going to be at the heart of the American enterprise. And I think it'll be at the heart of the North American enterprise. So uh, we have good partners and I'll turn it over to Jerry. All right. Thank you very much, John. One does get the sense, Jerry, that the two of you have been itching to work together, probably not in the jobs that you have now, but in your previous jobs, uh, to do a lot of the stuff that John mentioned. So where do you think the opportunities lie? Well, um, <clears throat> fortunately, we have had not as much time as we would both like, I think, John, but um, we have had some overlap over the years. So it's, uh, it's good to see you again, and it's good to continue this conversation. Uh, it won't surprise you, Althea, to hear that I agree with uh, almost everything uh, my colleague, my American colleague said. I think that um, uh, both countries are better served when we focus on the many, many, many things that we have in common. Uh, from our strategic uh, objectives to our values to um, the aspirations of our people who uh, we spent a lot of time in during the Trump administration reminding Americans, uh, Americans needed less reminding than sometimes the administration did, John, uh, how close those ties are and how codependent we are and how mutually beneficial the relationship is. So as a Canadian, and I should say that I'm speaking as a Canadian citizen and not as a representative of the uh, current government in any way, shape or form, uh, I'm very excited by the possibilities. Uh, I think that uh, maybe I can pick up where John left off and talk about Canadianize a couple of the points that he made. And then I know there are lots of questions already coming in, so uh, we'll get to those. Um, I think it's really important to nest this conversation in what's going on globally in climate change. You know, I, it makes me feel uh, a little old to even say this, but I'm entering my third decade of working on climate change from in one way, shape or form from beginning with the coal retirement in Ontario in the early part of uh, the first decade of the century, a stint at WWF um, through the government. And now at Eurasia Group, we advise clients who uh, taken together, have about $12 trillion of assets under management. And what I can tell you has changed from a macro level in the climate conversation is everybody is positioning themselves in the energy transition. And when I talk about the energy transition, that term means a lot of things to a lot of people. But I think a helpful way of thinking about it is that globally we're moving from an energy system that is uh, principally reliant on the carbon atom for usable energy toward one that's principally reliant on the renewable electron for usable energy. And that sounds like a simple thing, but it's one that ramifies through every sector of the economy. So, uh, and that change has accelerated and it continues to accelerate almost on a quarterly basis. My favorite example of that in the political sphere is 
the the aggressive climate platform that President Biden ran on in this election, I think, John, you would agree, would have been unthinkable even one cycle ago. Uh, it would have been very difficult to sell. Um, but a combination of uh, policy change elsewhere, the movement of capital markets into job-creating enterprises in the clean economy, and most importantly, from my perspective, uh, a demographic change where you see younger people, millennials and Gen Z around the world taking um, much more influential positions in all three sectors of society. And because they have more skin in the game, they're demanding more action on this issue. So I think that uh, when you look at um, what is driving policymakers on climate change and what is driving public concern about climate change, uh, it's big macro trends. These are not flavors of the month. This is not, not something that's going to go away anytime soon. So it behooves policymakers and leaders in all sectors to orient themselves strategically toward this change in order to ensure both a just transition for the people who are going to be hurt by it um, and uh, from a bigger picture perspective, prosperity for, pe for people who are going to benefit from it. So I think it's important to look at that global perspective because it's no longer um, dominated by multilateral political institutions and geopolitical actors who are trying to make their publics aware of the problem and therefore uh, get political license to make policy change. Everybody's aware of this problem now, and in particular, uh, large uh, pools of capital and market movers are seeing this as an economic opportunity. So what does that mean in, in very real concrete terms? I think uh, one of the things we've been thinking and writing a lot about at Eurasia Group is how um, the climate conversation globally is becoming characterized by strategic economic competition rather than multilateral cooperation. Uh, and when you look at a, any given supply chain for a large global industry, the one that I like to think about a lot is the, um, and I know you do too as well, John, is the automotive sector. Um, it's changing very, very quickly. And uh, over the past decade, uh, it pains me to say this, but the Chinese have taken a much more aggressive strategic approach to owning key parts of the global supply chain, be it um, rare earth minerals or the pr uh, production facilities for batteries at scale, we're entering this competition uh, behind the eight ball. And of course, there are thousands and thousands of Canadians and Americans who are uh, employed in the sector uh, who depend on the future growth and health of the sector for their prosperity. Um, my view is that we're both going to be better off on both sides of the border, as we have been in the past if we uh, orient ourselves toward this global competition as one force. And uh, it served us extraordinarily well in the past, not only in automotive, but also in energy and a host of, all a, a host of other industries. And um, I have no reason to believe it won't serve us well in the future. The, the most important kind of the secret sauce uh, in this global equation is, or maybe the trillion dollar question, is the extent to which the tech sector, which the United States economy still dominates, notwithstanding some important strategic challenges from the Chinese, is going to start to, um, uh, maybe this is uh, too direct a term, but it's going to start to eat other industries as it has with logistics. Um, 
industries like the automotive sector and industries like the energy business. And I think the, the, the integration of our economies in tech is going to be a real strategic advantage to Canadians. Our proximity to the American supply chain, both in terms of capital and in terms of talent, is going to be super important to the future growth of Canadian firms. Um, but it's all going to take policy and leadership coordination at the top. I think, John, you would agree that um, uh, while the details can be worked out by people like us, there's no uh, substitute for common purpose at the top of a government, a large company, uh, the third sector. And if that leadership can continually focus the productive efforts and talents of, of the many, many thousands of people uh, who want to see both countries succeed, on this front, I think literally the sky's the limit. When when President Obama came to speak to the House of Commons, um, the the Prime Minister in introducing him, he said he to kind of spur people's confidence. He said we need we need to remember that this is North America. This is the place where the future gets invented. And uh, I think that if we can make common cause, we can rediscover that spirit of enterprise and innovation and serve both ourselves and our respective citizens really well. Thank you, Jerry. There are so many questions that I'm going to ask you a bunch of double-barreled questions. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll kind of group them by theme. Um, but John, picking up on what Jerry is talking about, uh, in his view that uh, both countries can accomplish more by working together, is there is your sense that there is a genuine interest in working on a hemispheric plan? Or are we talking more about aligning regulations issue by issue on things that make sense, like methane or vehicle emission standards? Or are we building something together? Well, you know, <laughs> I guess that the honest answer to that is that remains to be seen, but I think there's goodwill on both sides to the more ambitious, the former. And I think that, uh, as Jerry noted, uh, we that needs to begin at the top with a kind of collective agreement that, our, uh, that there's advantage to think about this as building uh, and building that fu future that uh, both sides want. It might begin uh, with the latter, with the way you the way you frame the question. Uh, uh, right now, I think really on the table is going to be uh, what are the vehicle emission standards going to look like. Uh, that's a that is a uh, a uh, conversation that's been on hold on the Canadian side, awaiting uh, for a resolution, particularly of whether uh, the United States will do what it's had done for for many years in the past, which is to uh, let California move forward with its uh, agreement first. I think the administration is likely to do that, but there needs to be a plan beyond that going forward to the, you know, not just through 2025, but through 2030 on our way towards um, building that uh, future, particularly in the automotive sector, uh, again, that was that was referenced. I think both sides see the future as electrification of transportation, uh, of more investment in transit. But there's uh, there's sort of the details to work out. And I think that if there's a if there's a, uh, 
at some level joint because of the integration of the supply chains, particularly at the North American border. Uh, I think if there's a common discussion about how we move from uh, higher levels of efficiency, uh, uh, a what's been the true for a long time, uh, integration of standards towards uh, a joint uh, vision about how we move to that 100% uh, clean vehicle, uh, zero emission vehicle uh, future that I think both sides are committed to uh, uh, in cooperation with our unions and with the companies so that we can see investment uh, on both sides of the border, uh, integration continue, and uh, the support for that, you know, that's maybe a place to start. But I think having the bigger vision about getting towards uh, an integrated clean electric system and, and a net zero economy by mid-century uh, is where the conversation has to take place at the leadership level. Um, and I think that uh, President Biden's committed to that. I know John Kerry's committed to that. And I think that those can be quite productive conversations. Yeah. And I before, think that- Jerry, before you answer it, let me uh, tack on an extra question for you. Um, do you think that it is up to Canada basically to insert itself into the climate discussion happening in the U.S., whether it's like, remember us, we can give you hydro, or remember us, we are now refining cobalt possibly in northern Ontario? Yeah, I think it is. I think that is the highest, uh, best purpose of Canadian diplomacy in the United States. I think we pr- we proved um, that Canadian diplomacy can be a very powerful tool in the United States in the Trump years and making uh, Congre- Congress people, senators, aware of how important Canadian economic activity is in the United States. After all, we're still the biggest export market for American goods, which is something I think I'm constitutionally required to remind every every American I ever meet. Uh, And we are the second, if you don't include the EU as one bloc, we're the second largest largest trading partner overall. So Canada is a, um, uh, I like the way John put it, uh, the first among equals in the United States bilateral relationships. And it's great to have someone in the White House who recognizes that. All that said, uh, and this is an important difference between the NAFTA discussion with the Trump administration and the climate discussion with the Biden administration. It probably, uh, he probably didn't like to see it this way on many days, but whether he liked it or not, uh, Donald Trump couldn't renegotiate NAFTA without Canada. That we were one of the three parties to the agreement, and in order to change the agreement, uh, he had to have uh, Canada's sign-off on the end uh, product, which I think is why we ended up at a reasonable outcome. Strictly speaking, Joe Biden doesn't need Canada to do climate policy in the United States. However, it is certainly my view as someone who's worked in this field for a long time, it's a lot easier for Joe Biden to achieve his ends that he's articulated in the campaign with Canada as a constructive partner than without us. My favorite example of this, and I think it's the most important one because it was the marquee commitment that the Biden campaign team made in, in the course of the presidential campaign. John described it earlier, the, the commitment to decarbonize the electricity grid in the United States by 2035. That, of course, is not only something that we have already done and recently, 
um, and have a lot of experience with. We haven't reached 100%, but certainly in the industrial heartland, uh, where we have the deepest bilateral ties in particular, on, deepest bilateral ties in the automotive sector, and I'll come to that in a second, Ontario and Quebec, we have almost entirely clean power. And uh, the newspapers are already full with the prospects of deals between Hydro-Quebec. Uh, you said, Althea, do you have to continuously remind Americans that we can play a role in this? Well, if you're sitting in New York City, chances are that your electricity, your air conditioning, and your lights are being kept on by Hydro-Quebec. So that's the kind of thing that we need to remind uh, Americans about. We can help them achieve their policy objectives. And um, while I said, as I said, strictly speaking, it, it is possible for the United States to achieve its main climate objectives without us, it's a lot easier, cheaper, more efficient and productive to do so in partnership. I want to pick up on something that uh, John mentioned, uh, which we have a question. Actually, I think we have a few questions. Maria Curie, uh, the first person on the slide to me who asked about um, integrated uh, North American supply chains, the fact that Canada and the U.S. seem to be singing from the same songbook when it comes to electric vehicles, for example, but maybe not so much with Mexico. Um, I'd like to tack that question on with also what impact you think the Buy American provisions uh, will have on the shared climate goal and our efforts to work together. I can give you a moment, John, if you want me to go no, first. Fine. You go I, first. I, I think at least going back to President Nixon, every U.S. president has had a version of Buy America. And it has been, uh, it has behooved every Canadian prime minister uh, of both parties throughout that time to be considered uh, American for procurement purposes. And every single prime minister has figured out a way with every single president to come to a mutually agreeable arrangement that we can both live with. Uh, that's somewhat complicated by the NAFTA zone, I think, in particular, not that we want to go down this rabbit hole, but in particular, the current Mexican administration's uh, not the friendliest climate administration in the world, and it's made, in particular, lately, some very big decisions that are going to cost uh, Canadian and American um, uh, clean tech investors, especially in the electricity grid. Uh, dearly and undermine confidence in foreign direct investment in Mexico, but that's maybe a topic for another panel. Uh, I think that the integration of the supply chains is a fact, and it's a choice to keep it that way. So um, I think we're, we tend to think about this in terms of the transition of the existing fleet and the existing supply chains, but it's also, and this is why I started by talking about the global context here, it's also important for us as we compete with other regions for uh, new investment dollars and therefore new jobs. We don't want the global heartbeat of the electric vehicle industry to be in Asia. We want it to be in North America. And right now, that is very much at issue when you look at um, where battery production is happening, where rare earth, earth mineral mining is happening. You mentioned Cobalt, Ontario, Althea. I think there are too few people who realize just how uh, rich we are in rare earth minerals in Canada. Um, we already have in, in the new NAFTA agreement uh, a rules of origin provision that requires us to source the materials of uh, the current supply chain in North America. 
that was envisioned in particular on the American side as a way to keep Chinese steel and aluminum, Russian aluminum out of the North American supply chain. But there's no reason that can't be applied to rare earth minerals so that we make sure that the automotive sector is creating as many jobs, not just in the primary industry, but in the supply chain here in North America. And, you know, I would say that there's sort of, there are um, two issues at hand. One is Biden's commitment by America in the initial uh, uh, executive orders that he's uh, put forward, the commitments that he made in the campaign to uh, send a very powerful signal that the days of ignoring uh, deindustrialization in this country are over. I think that that's a, that's a powerful signal to the Chinese in particular. And, uh, but I think smart people, like-minded people can figure out what Jerry was suggesting because those industries are already thoroughly linked. Uh, and I think there's goodwill, uh, to be had, uh, you know, and, the auto sector is probably the, the a principal example, but it, it, I think it works really across a, a, a chain of industries. Uh, there's a separate issue about having uh, of uh, carbon border adjustment. This will be not only a question of integration uh, in in North America, but the question of trying to come to agreement with our, uh, particularly with our European friends and allies in the EU uh, who will be putting forward uh, carbon border adjustment framework, uh, you know, as early as this late spring or early summer. And uh, I think everyone is in, uh, uh, a, is in a mindset of saying we cannot give up uh, in tradable, in the tradable sectors, we can't give up our advantage if we're uh, being good global citizens and tackling the climate challenge to people who aren't uh, meeting that challenge. So carbon border adjustment, I think, is coming, uh, whether that's done within the context of uh, revision of, of WTO protocols or it's done on a bilateral basis, it is definitely coming. Uh, both, both Canada and the U.S. have embraced the idea, uh, but there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place to see how systems that uh, really are uh, architected somewhat differently uh, on the U.S. side with investment and standards in Canada, more with a backbone of carbon pricing, but we have to we have to find a way to uh, uh, to try to find common ground when we're aiming at the same goal. And that's mid-century, you know, net zero economies. So the, those are technical discussions, I think. But at at a, at a high end, I think uh, we we share a common purpose, and we share a common goal of protecting those industries against unfair competition from uh, from abroad. So I think I think that those are workable issues, but we need to get to work on them. Yeah, and yeah. if I could, Althea, on the carbon yeah. border adjustment, because many, probably many uh, of our listeners and viewers haven't spent as much time on this topic as you and I have, John. Uh, maybe I'll just explain it really quickly. A carbon border adjustment is when 
uh, a given economy decides that it's going to eliminate the competitive cost advantage that a traded good would get when it's produced uh, in a place that doesn't really regulate its carbon emissions or in any way price its carbon emissions. So the most common example is a solar panel, PV, solar, solar PV panel created in North America will have a much lower carbon footprint than one created in China that is possibly created using coal power. And therefore, in China, it will have a larger greenhouse gas or climate change footprint. Um, the Europeans who have lost a lot of their solar and wind manufacturing to China, in particular the Germans over the past 20 years, look at this situation and say, well, if we're all agreed we need to fight climate change, why wouldn't we privilege the instruments we're using to fight climate change that are created with the fewest greenhouse gases uh, emitted possible? Um, so all of that means that in one way, shape, or form, every economy is going to have a carbon price. The question is whether you want to impose it on yourself from within or have it imposed upon your goods from another uh, regional economy. And the, the Europeans, and this, this is probably the most important short-term climate policy discussion uh, between North the, in the transatlantic conversation, we need to make sure, uh, as both Canada and the United States, and we have a free trade agreement with Europe, uh, the United States does not, uh, we need to make sure that our goods and services are not disadvantaged unintentionally by the discussions going on in, uh, in the European Union. So that's a perfect example of where there's common cause to be made between Canada and the United States, where we have different advantages and disadvantages in the conversation with Europe, but put together, uh, it's a very powerful force. Okay, well, sticking on that, because we actually did have questions about carbon adjust, border adjustment. Um, I, what I'm hearing from both of you is that you don't think it's a protectionist counter uh, productive measure and that it's perfectly legitimate and it's something that we should be engaging in. How do you think it should be designed? Because um, as you know, Canada has said it's looking into it. Are we looking at something that would possibly be a continent border, carbon border adjustment? Well, I'll, I'll go first and, and, and Jerry can dive in. I think we're really at the beginning of the conversation. Uh, and I think that would be preferable in my view. Uh, but, uh, I, on the question of whether this is a protectionist me measure, I think it, 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 first of all, I, I don't think it is. I think that if you're imposing, uh, if you're absorbing the external cost of polluting, uh, I, and putting that burden on your industries, you would expect to put it on. Uh, industries overseas. So you don't want free riding to take place uh, by any country. Uh, but the the other uh, reason why I think this is really quite critical is it's the, it's a, a mechanism of increasing pressure on ambition across the globe so that everybody gets on board. It's kind of more, it's a more for more system. And, uh, you know, I think that's from a climate perspective, I think that is an accelerant to, to transformation towards a cleaner, more sustainable future. So I think it's a very uh, critical tool in increasing ambition across the globe. 
Yeah, and I couldn't agree with that more. I think if you think about the arguments that have been made against climate action in the past, they've largely taken the form of we can't afford to do it, right? And the reason we can't afford to do it is because if we put increasing costs on our own manufacturing sector, energy business, automotive industry, whatever uh, sector you want to use as an example, that activity will migrate elsewhere where the pollution isn't priced. And, you know, concretely, that commonly takes the form of if you tax our sector A, it will move to China and we'll end up importing it back into Canada or the United States. This policy instrument removes that argument from the discussion and uh, it may, that therefore makes it uh, a more compelling domestic uh, economic argument. But from a global perspective, more important, what John said, it's uh, a mechanism to ratchet up pressure on economies around the world to lower their carbon footprint. Okay, I'm going to uh, give you several questions at once. Okay. Can that way the US... it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so we can get as many in. Uh, can the U.S. make the kind of progress required without a legislated national price on carbon? Uh, does Canada need to uh, raise its price on carbon beyond $170 a ton? How crucial will it be to commercialize and widely adopt technologies like hydrogen, even new generation smaller nuclear reactors? Is there opportunity for Canada and the U.S. to work together on things like carbon sinks? Whoever wants to go first. What? That's a lot. <laughs> Jerry, you want to go first? <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pick a couple at random. I think the carbon sink issue, which is really a broader nature-based solutions issue that involves everything from uh, tree planting to better soil management so that we absorb more carbon in our agricultural practices. I think that's uh, pardon the bad pun, but there's a lot of common ground there. Um, we can uh, work together through our scientific institutions to make sure that we're maximizing the uh, the solutions that we deploy, uh, that we regulate, and that we encourage through public and private investment. Uh, I think there's no end of cooperation on all of those fronts, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, when when you when you take a step back from uh, that that series of questions, it, it actually highlights to me there are very few things that we can't work together on. <laughs> um, and uh, if you go back to the joint um, uh, statement, the communique coming out of, I believe it was the, <clears throat> it must have been the 2016 Three Amigos uh, meeting in Ottawa, which most people in Ottawa will remember as the, the one where we couldn't get the handshake right uh, between the three <laughs> principles. <laughs> we were in that great photo. Uh, there was actually a really remarkably detailed communique uh, signed at that, at that uh, meeting detailing what continental cooperation on climate could look like. I hope uh, I'm not distracting too many people with my vicious guard dog who's barking at a mailman in the background there. Work from home. <laughs> Authenticity, John. Okay, let me. So, Jeff, Jeff, let me. Yeah. Uh, let me. Let me take a uh, whack at the carbon pricing question. You know, we have carbon pricing through our regional force, through Reggie, through the California system uh, in the U.S. already. Uh, but I think that uh, Biden, in the campaign, and I think now in his proposals coming forward in the administration, took a somewhat different view. Didn't exclude carbon pricing, but the heart of his 
uh, climate program was uh, investment standards and equity. That is uh, a massive investment in uh, clean energy deployment, in deployment of the technologies that are necessary to support clean energy solutions, uh, that we would uh, create standards both uh, for everything from in the power sector to uh, to uh, increased efficiency standards uh, across the board in both in uh, residential and building use and industrial use, uh, and uh, that we needed to attend to the cumulative impact of uh, of uh, pollution on distressed communities, particularly communities of color, fence line communities, indigenous communities. And that was his program. Uh, you know, it was the heart of it wasn't uh, wasn't a carbon price, although I don't think he's, he, as I said, he's never excluded a carbon price. The question is, can you get to the goals that he set through that strategy? And my view is, yes, you can. Uh, and that, uh, that, there are people who uh, will argue that the most efficient way is through a pricing mechanism. My argument is that uh, it, at some level, uh, that was true, uh, and there's still a place for it. And Canada has obviously made it a principal element of its uh, carbon strategy. But you're uh, at any kind of level that at least in the United States that we're talking about in terms of carbon pricing, you're not going to decarbonize the, the uh, transportation sector. You're not decarbonizing uh, uh, marine shipping, uh, the uh, air traffic. You have to have different strategies applied on a sectoral basis. And I think that's what, that's what Biden and Harris have embraced. So, will uh, I think of pricing as mo as more of a complementary policy in the United States, and I think that means that we're going to have to uh, again, we're going to have to adjust systems that are built around su slightly different concepts, but aiming at the same targets and goals. And I want to say one other thing on um, on uh, carbon sinks uh, and uh, natural solutions. One of the uh, reasons that everybody's kind of moved and focused uh, different than where people were in Paris and where the world was in Paris, which is trying to hit that just under two degree C target to hit a 1.5 degree C increase in global average temperatures. Uh, you need to be net neutral. You need to be net zero. That is, we need to be taking as much carbon out of the atmosphere as we're putting into it. Uh, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences did a study of that and concluded that uh, about nine gigatons of carbon have to be removed by 2050 and every year after that. Most of that can happen through natural solutions. So coordinating both our agriculture sectors and also kind of focusing on the fact that we, in addition to a climate crisis, we have a nature crisis and being able to jointly work problems around uh, uh, protecting nature, uh, uh, kind of natural solutions in the places that are both transporter and places that are common, like in the Arctic, will be, I think, a critical component of U.S. 
Canadian cooperation going forward, because in the end of the day, uh, we're we, we're relying on that those um, the uh, those natural systems to basically manage a sustainable, stable climate and uh, and therefore a stable and sustainable economy and the well-being of of our people. If I could just add one. John, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you a question, but I did note that you didn't ask, answer the question about the price on carbon in Canada. Um, But maybe I can get you both very briefly uh, to weigh in on where you think we need to be uh, in 2030 in order to get to net zero by 2050. Uh, Well, I mean, I obviously support the, the price, the scheduled increase in the price on carbon to 170. Uh, I think it it is really. Does it need to go further? Uh, well, I think we'll see in 2030, right? Um, 2030 is—it's uh, funny, you know. I remember—I remember the conversations about do we need a national price on carbon? Then it doesn't need to be higher than fifty dollars, and now does it need to be higher than one hundred seventy dollars? I'll make a bold prediction that if it were set to higher than one hundred seventy dollars, the next question would be: Does it need to be higher than whatever amount it was set at? Uh, I think that the point, though, about carbon pricing is really worth dwelling on um, because it's become, uh, and and I think rightfully so, because it's such an effective and efficient instrument, it's become seen in some quarters as a silver bullet that uh, if you do this, you don't really need to do anything else. And if you look at the experience of jurisdictions that have had effective carbon abatement, uh, including some here in Canada, you know, the biggest... Uh, reduction in carbon emissions in Canadian history was, of course, the Ontario coal retirement that Premier McGuinty uh, uh, put in place in the first decade of this century. And he did it without a carbon price. Um, And he did it, I I would argue that it certainly was more effective to do it in the way that he did it than it would have been had he set a carbon price sufficient to drive coal off the grid in a way that Ontario's electricity policy was then constructed. And then we went through a long period in Canada where a national carbon price was unimaginable because of the uh, the Harper government's policy was opposed to it. So provinces um, put in place their own versions. BC, uh, Quebec, and Ontario uh, put in place different but kind of complementary mechanisms to price carbon. I think that's remarkably similar to what's happening in the United States now. John is certainly right that if we want to get after the heavy embedded carbon and um, the embedded carbon and heavy industrial practice uh, uh, processes like steel, uh, concrete, we're not going to get that carbon out of there with uh, a carbon price. It's going to take active intervention by policy, direct investment, uh, to get at that really pernicious, um, difficult to abate carbon in the economy. So I, I don't see it as an either or thing. I kind of see it as a both and. Uh, I know, John, that you support the carbon price here in Canada, but you know you can speak for yourself on that, obviously. It's been a really important mechanism nationally because it uh, creates a uniform policy across the country so that no matter where you're investing, be it in southern Ontario or rural Saskatchewan, you know that you're going to have to um, uh, account for a carbon price. Uh, you know, my point really was, for example, in the, in the transportation sector, 
you know, it, it depends on how much carbon is embedded in the price of the end product. That's the problem with steel, cement, aluminum, etc. It's just that the cost of energy is not enough of the component price that the price has to be astronomical uh, to uh, uh, to begin to decarbonize those sectors. That's why it's so important uh, to uh, do one of the other things I think Biden's promise, which I think will have a global public effect, which is to double or even triple the investment in R&D for these hard to decarbonize sectors. But if you take something more, more simple like transportation, I think uh, following the lead of uh, Governor Newsom, uh, a... Uh, zero emission vehicle mandate is going to get you there a lot faster than uh, gradually raising the price of gasoline uh, towards an, uh, an all-electric uh, new car sales uh, future. And, you know, I could be wrong about that. Other people would, would disagree with that. But it seems to me it's an efficient mechanism. It, it directs investment. It aligns with where GM and Ford have already said they're going. Uh, it gets the job done because you know what the end point is that, you know, pick a date in Canada, 2040, maybe 2035 in California. Uh, I, I think the United States could hit that date uh, nationally. You know, all new cars and light duty trucks need to be zero emission. And then people can plan for that. They invest in that. They create the supply chains that support that. Uh, and it seems to me that it's not a pricing strategy, but it's an effective and efficient way to move the sector. Okay, we have a lot of questions. I'm going to give you a bunch of questions again, so okay. we can get as many in our last um, eight minutes. Uh, is nuclear dead beyond small nuclear reactors? Is, is, is nuclear a non-starter? Um, somebody would like to know if Keystone is really dead. Um, another thing that Joe Biden promised on the campaign trail was putting an end to fossil fuel subsidies and working to put a worldwide end to fossil fuel subsidies. Is that another headache for Canada? Um, and on TPP, uh, President Biden on the campaign trail said he would work to renegotiate clauses talking about labor and environmental standards, concerns about the investment, the investor state dispute settlement. Uh, is that something that's likely to happen as well? Lots there. Well, uh, let me. I'll, I'll start. I think I think Keystone's dead. <laughs> I think you know at some point you know it's he's he's not he's withdrawn the permit. He's not going back. He made that commitment, and so we just got to get over it and move on and find these places on clean energy where where uh, we can cooperate. I know. I'm sure. It'll come up again when they meet, but I think there's no turning back at this point. Um, on nuclear, I think there's a there there's a sort of two questions. One is, do the economics of small nuclear really work? I'm a, I'm a I I think I I don't have a uh, kind of religious opposition to new small mod you know modular nuclear. Question is really, is it going to be cost competitive with a combination of renewables and storage. I'm, I, you know, I'm sort of skeptical, but people will invest some money in, in, in the R and D side of it. And we'll see, we'll see what happens, whether they can produce, uh, a full life cycle, uh, 
base load uh, small nuclear reactor that can compete with renewables and storage. The cost curve's going down on nuclear and storage. It's still going up on nuclear, so it's hard to see that. Um, the uh, the end of fossil fuel subsidies has been something that's been agreed to by the G20 for a very long time. Now we got to get on with it and and sort of get the job done. And I'll let Jerry ask how that affects the uh, the Canadian side. On TPP, I think that Biden has really indicated that he wants to get the U.S. economy humming again before he gets back into thinking about trade. Uh, and trade negotiations and re-entering negotiations. Um, now, you know, maybe that'll change as they do their full review of China policy, uh, because I think in the end of the day, TPP was really uh, as much a geopolitical strategy around uh, the how the Asia-Pacific architecture would work as it was an economic policy. But right now, I don't see any, I don't see them, uh, you know, elevating this to a kind of, uh, first year priority i think they're going to their priority get the us economy going get job growth back going you got to start by getting covid under control but then get these big uh investments going in in uh the clean energy and the care economies that's their focus uh and tpp or the follow on will come later i think yeah <clears throat> i'll try and answer those four quickly as well althea on tpp uh, I'll say two quick things. One is that the geopolitics of TPP, which was its raison d'etre to begin with, uh, will, I think, bring the U.S. back into TPP, but not now, <laughs> for exactly the reasons John described. Uh, I know that the signatories to TPP tried to keep it as friendly to the United States as possible so that a future administration could rejoin it when it became politically feasible to do so in the United States. Um, so with minor adjustments, I think it's possible for the U.S. to come back into the agreement, but I don't think it's going to be a high priority for the Biden administration. On um, fossil fuel subsidies, uh, of course, that's the stated policy of the Trudeau government. Uh, in my experience, the devil is in the details on what constitutes a subsidy to fossil fuels and what doesn't. And uh, that includes everything from the way we price electricity at the provincial level to uh, incentives for foreign direct investment in the sector. And, it, and everybody has a different approach to it. So I think that's, it's not a lack of will, it's a, a lack of work uh, internationally that has kept fossil fuel subsidies. Keystone, I, I don't know what, <laughs> John, uh, how many conversations have we had about Keystone over the years? Um, I, I, I don't know what I can say other than uh, diplomatically, the reason that the U.S. has the option to say no to Keystone has more to do with the increase in U.S. production of uh, oil and gas between the time Keystone was announced and today than uh, anything that we can say or do in Canada. And that is someone who's dealt with a Democrat who didn't like it, a Republican who said he liked it, and now a Democrat who doesn't like it. And through all those three, the project never happened. And I think when that, when you're faced with that situation, you have to reflect on what are the domestic reasons uh, for it not happening. And alongside an increase, of course, in concern about climate change amongst Democratic voters, you had um, uh, an astronomical increase in domestic oil and gas production in the United States. So that Presidents Trump, Obama, and Biden 
Biden have something that no president really since Eisenhower, maybe even Truman, has had at their disposal when it comes to oil and gas, and that is choices. <laughs> and I think that they've exercised those choices uh, to the detriment of uh, the Keystone Pipeline and to the broader Canadian economy. But I also agree with John. There's no changing the current administration's mind on that, and uh, we should spend as much time as possible on the things where we agree and uh, minimize our disagreements, as most productive relationships do. I missed the fourth one. What was the fourth one, Althea? It was about nuclear. Oh, nuclear. A um, lot of experience with that in Ontario. Obviously, it's fundamental to the stability and affordability and um, uh, uh, cleanliness of the Ontario electricity grid in particular. Uh, I'm a skeptic on the cost. I think that I'm pro-nuclear when it comes to emissions uh, and safety and reliability of baseload power, reliable baseload power. But the cost has always been the problem with nuclear. And while I want to believe that the SMR's technology solves that problem, I'm kind of from Missouri on it. Uh, you're going to have to show me. Uh, we're at time. Thank you very much to both Thanks, of you. Okay. There were a lot of questions. I think we got through as much as we possibly could. Uh, John Podesta, Jerry Butts, thank you so much. And thank you all of you for tuning in and sending in your questions. We Stay healthy, it. everybody. Bye. Thanks. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. You too.